Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Professor Cheryl Cashin. She is the author of the brand new book, Loving, Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First off, could you give our listeners a little bit of your own personal background? One of the things I found fascinating was that you participated in your very first sit-in at the age of four months. Uh, Can you (laughs) talk a little bit about your background? I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, to activist parents. And as you said, my mother took me with her to a sit-in at a lunch counter along with a, my mom was a a dentist's wife, along with another black doctor's wife who was eight months pregnant. And this was their collective strategy to overcome the news blackout on the sit-in movement in Huntsville. And, uh, that worked, and that was the beginning of the movement to success in their sit-in movement, and it was utterly nonviolent. The police in Huntsville were polite and would kind of just stand there. So, you know, they knew that it was not dangerous to take a pregnant woman and, a, and an infant um, off to jail. But I literally was born into the crucible of civil rights. <laughs> And so that was in 1962. In 1967, 50 years ago, the case that you base your newest book around happened. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to write about Loving the Virginia, how you came to write Loving, why you think we need to be looking at this case today? Yes. So Loving versus Virginia is the Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court struck down bans on interracial marriage. It's the first time in the history of the court where they used the words white supremacy to name the ideology that uh, the 14th Amendment and the Civil War was supposed to put to bed. And I teach this case to my students. I'm a law professor uh, at Georgetown. And it occurred to me with the 50th anniversary coming of this case, that it was a refreshing context in which to reflect on where we are and how we got here with race relations. Many people don't know that the whole concept of whiteness and white supremacy was constructed through regulations of interracial sex and marriage. Um, And and so I thought this would be an interesting way to tell this history and also reflect on how much has changed with interracial intimacy since 1967. Now, Cheryl, one of the things I learned from the book was that the word miscegenation uh, was created in 1864 and under some very strange circumstances. Could you talk a little bit about how miscegenation came to be a term that was used and the two journalists from the New York world who popularized it? Right. So it's it's miscegenation. They, they made this word up, and it's in the context of a heated 
re-election campaign for Abraham Lincoln, 1864, they made up this word, Messer to mix genus race miscegenation, and they created a hoax pamphlet. You know, this is fake news in 1864. During um, election season. Yeah, prime election season, in which the pamphlet appears to be a document written by and for Republicans affirming race mixing, extolling the virtues of race mixing. Uh, and so, you know, it, it talks about, you know, the, the human race will be so much better if we just mix and, and, you know, which was anathema to this whole idea of white racial purity, right? And it actually, the hoax goes on for about a year before it's exposed as a hoax. And it spawns a whole literature of if you put in miscegenation ball and Google miscegenation ball, you'll see these pictures in which they depict Republican, white Republican men in compromising positions with very dark skinned black women, you know, and they, 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 what they're trying to do is again, peel struggling whites away from the Republican column and make them think that if they vote for Abraham Lincoln, then a black man is going to end up having sex with your daughter. Fortunately, it didn't work. I mean, fortunately, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a deft politician. He was uh, pro-abolition, but he also negotiated that minefield well enough to get himself reelected. And we've had the word ever since, miscegenation. Miscegenation, which I did not even pronounce correctly. That's <laughs> okay. And I think the you know the majority of our listeners have probably not already read your book yet. So, just for the information of anyone out there who's thinking about reading Loving, this is not a dry legal text. This is very engaging and approachable. Can you talk about um, the audience you had in mind when you were writing this book? Yeah, so this is my fourth book, and I, I all of my books have been written for broader audiences, and I really tried to use the stories of individuals, lots of interracial couples and interracial allies, to tell this story about this dance we've been in from the beginning in America between, on the one hand, the values of universal human dignity reflected in Thomas Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence and the values of supremacy also reflected in some of Thomas Jefferson's words, but also, you know, down through the centuries, many other political agitators, leaders, whatever. The Loving case is the sort of backdrop to this story. I certainly tell the story of Richard and Mildred Loving and their nine-year struggle just to be left alone by the state of Virginia's man and wife. But, you know, throughout our history, we've had art, what I call ardent integrators, people who defied lines to love or make alliance. And, and we can talk about some of those folks, if you like. I absolutely would like that. Um, one of the early early couples that you mentioned briefly was Elizabeth Key and William Grinstead. Right. And one thing I found really great was when I was being educated in American schools, we covered the Revolutionary War, we covered the Pilgrims, we didn't cover too much in between that. And you go back into the 17th century in particular, where there were not these clear divisions. Can you talk a little bit about Elizabeth Key and William Grinstead, 
uh, Nell and Charles Butler, some of these couples back then who were making choices of who to love and who to marry. Right. Well, let me give your listeners just a little bit of context first. In the first six decades of the colonies, particularly in Virginia, there was no concept of whiteness. You can find evidence of, you know, you had white indentured servants and indigenous and black slaves who were working alongside each other in the fields. They would get drunk together, have sex, run off, rebel together, and sometimes marry. And Elizabeth Key is an example. Um, Her status was, because she was the daughter of a mixed-race liaison, she was either, she was indentured, but, and her father, a rich white man, left her in the custody, I guess you could say, of another white man, and that white man betrayed the father and treated her as a slave, and she ended up successfully petitioning for her freedom, in part because she descended from a free Englishman, and she married um, another Englishman. And so this was in the era before there were bans on interracial marriage. And I, I uh, what, was the, what was the other couple that you mentioned that intrigued you? I mentioned Nell and Charles Butler. Oh, yes. So this couple is famous uh, among legal historians. Nell, um, referred to as Irish Nell, was a white indentured servant. And her husband, Charles, who took her last name, Butler, um, he was a slave. And they were both working for Lord Baltimore, who was um, one of the leaders of the Maryland colony. And she fell in love. And at the time, this was when the slave-owning class had decided to move from heavy reliance on white indentured servants to black chattel slavery. Once they started to do that, they began to introduce penalties for interracial marriage and interracial sex because they didn't want this kind of fraternization. And the penalty for marrying a slave in Maryland at that time was that your children would become a slave. And you would become a slave. And Lord Baltimore tried to talk Irish Nell out of this. And she said, (laughs) I'd rather go to bed with Charles than you, Lord Baltimore. I love him, right? And so she married him. And all of their children became slaves. And the reason we know about them is that their descendants, uh, mixed-race descendants of this couple, later petitioned for their freedom. And that's how this couple comes to light. But it shows the harshness of the regime, you know. And if your listeners get nothing else from this discussion, I really want to underscore that whiteness was created through anti-miscegenation law to solve a class conflict between wealthy planters and poor white servants. Poor white servants had been rebelling at the, the horrible conditions they endured, and they had been rebelling often with along with indigenous people and black people. And so whiteness had a political function, and it helped 
when they started to give white servants better conditions and distinguish them from slaves, it helped to to settle that class rebellion. And this dog whistling divide and conquer function of whiteness and continues to this day. Whenever in American history you see an assertion of white supremacy or a regime that elevates whiteness like Jim Crow, there's typically an economic story where struggling white people along with black people are getting screwed by elites that don't want struggling people to demand too much of them. So the concept of whiteness versus, you know, any other thing that we say, whether it's black or Hispanic or Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's complicated in these days or maybe not complicated. Maybe we're having it illuminated for us. You know, you can spit in in a little plastic tube and send it off to a, a DNA analysis service And a lot of people are surprised at what they get back when they look at what their DNA says about their lineage. And they say, well, I had no idea. How could this be? But this idea that we started out separated and that there was that there was some sort of white purity. How did that come about? Why is that the story that we are told today and that we believe? Whose purposes does it serve? Well, uh, your comment underscores just the whole artificiality of it. So this fictional white purity gets constructed. What anti-miscegenation laws said and what the ideology of white supremacy said is that if you are a white person, you are forbidden to marry or have sex with a person of another color, of a a non-white person. You know, in the Jim Crow regime, you were forbidden even to play checkers. You couldn't marry, live with, you know, go to school with, play checkers with, much less a lie in politics with a non-white person. And the political function of that artificial regime was to peel off struggling whites from potential allies and ensure that not much would be demanded in politics or just through agitation of plutocrats, slave-owning plutocrats, land-owning plutocrats. And um, I tell that story, but I also tell the story that it was utterly artificial. We see that. I mean, Thomas Jefferson participated in this idea, but yet, you know, fathered six children with Sally Hemings, Strom Thurmond, you know, he's the author of the Southern Manifesto, and yet he fathered a daughter with a teenage housekeeper. So there's like this, yes, I mean, be careful what you wish for. If you take a DNA test, there are very few thoroughbreds in the United States of America. You know, there's always been mixing. Unfortunately, and I tell this dark history too, most interracial sex in the 17th century was consensual. It's only after, you know, the onset of black chattel slavery in the 18th and 19th century, most interracial sex is non-consensual. It's master-slave sex with, you know, masters imposing themselves on their black female slaves. The fact that the Loving case was against the state of Virginia seems to me to be very meaningful, too. You say that it was in Virginia that the one-drop rule was created. Can you describe that for our audience? What's the one-drop rule? How did that idea differ from other ideas about race, say, further south? Okay, so 
in Virginia, and, and Virginia is the leader in all this because Virginia had the largest population of people and slaves in the colonial era. And Virginia, when in, in its first comprehensive slave code, introduces this ban or penalty for interracial sex and interracial marriage. And for the next 300 years, Virginia relentlessly polices this color line. And the 1924 Racial Integrity Act is a law that Mildred and Richard Loving bump up against. And and this is passed in 1924 as a time when ideas of eugenics and supremacy and, you know, purity of bloodlines is, is just really raging in American society, but particularly in Virginia. And in that act, they greatly constrict who can qualify as white. And in theory, in the act, in order to be white, you have to be 100% unadulterated white, not mixed with anything, with one exception, the so-called Pocahontas exception. Descendants of Pocahontas, people who could had no more than 116th native blood, could still be white. Right, And so that's the one-drop rule. It was a social convention followed in the Upper South and eventually in the Lower South, uh, but it gets codified in law. And when someone went to get married, as Richard and Mildred Loving did, I mean, they, they went to D.C. to get married, the clerk would eyeball people and decide whether someone was racially pure. Right. And again, it it was an utter artifice that was used to constrain, frankly, who could have the full privileges of citizenship. You know, Um, the whole Jim Crow regime, it constricted voting. Um, In some ways, access to citizenship was also constricted in this way. This whole concept of who was worthy for a range of privileges, those who were purely white, there was no question that they were entitled. Those who weren't struggled, struggled to be, to have the full equality that's supposed to be guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. And the mean-spiritedness and the ludicrousness of this, you know, I, I read a little bit about Walter Plecker, who oh was the God, head of the yeah. Virginia Bureau of Vital Statistics. And this man, could you talk a little bit about him and the effects that his career actually directly had on the life of Mildred Loving? Yes. And like, so you're, you're underscoring, and I really appreciate this interview because... Not a lot of interviews give space to this, but you're underscoring that this book is character-driven. You know, it's full of characters, um, villains and some saints, right? (laughs) And Walter (laughs) Plecker is clearly a villain, right? He was the head of of the Bureau of Statistics. I can't remember the precise word, but the keeper of all the records. And this guy who was one of the main actors behind the passage of the Racial Integrity Act, was utterly obsessed with bloodlines. And he had a a little army of minions, including all the county clerks, that he could order around to, to, to make, they were the ones who enforced the Racial Integrity Act. And he would, he was so obsessed that he would keep a list of families by county of mixed race families like Mildred, um, she was Mildred Jeter then, 
the Jeter family was on his list, of mixed light-skinned families that might try to sneak into whiteness. And so, like, here, be on guard, right? And he would, you know, birth certificates that he personally sometimes would chase down a woman and, you know, try to make her change the race of her child from white to Negro or something else, you know, because, he, he you know, it, it was just unbelievably um it feels very strange in reading it now. It's like you're looking at some other planet. But this was what it was like. And Mildred and Richard Loving get married in 1958, right? And the judge, when they go off to get married, well, you know, they come from this town, Central Point, where there was a lot of what they call nighttime integration, a lot of mixing, a lot of mixed-race people in that town, going back to the, the colonial era. And they fell in love. She gets pregnant. They go off to get married. Um, and within weeks of them being married, the county sheriff, and those of you who've seen the movie, this is what's depicted in the movie, Loving, um, the county sheriff and two deputies yank them from their bed in the middle of the night violently and she's six months pregnant and throw her and Richard in jail in separate cells. Um, But this is utter meanness and it really underscores just how threatened people were by interracial love. Like, you doing this is undermining this regime, this other way of life. We cannot have that. And to be honest, what's disturbing, if you look at American society today, if you read up on some of these hate groups, you may recall the awful words that Dylan Roof uttered before he shot those nine parishioners in South Carolina. He said, they're raping our women. This ancient dogma about interracial mixing is being used today to recruit young men like Dylan Roof to these domestic terror cells, you know? And it's shocking to me that some people, I think it's a tiny, tiny minority, but some people are falling for this. And it's based on this fundamental idea of fear of some kind of, you know, assault on this fictional white purity, both of citizen and country. Now, you and I met each other at the ABA annual meeting, which Mm -hmm. happened actually the same weekend that the events in Charlottesville occurred. And this was also a a month or two after your book had been published. Mm -hmm. In your book, you have a very persuasive argument that the more interracial relationships occur, the more we will become culturally dexterous. Do any of the current events or animosities make you doubt that we are on a path forward to that future? Well, first, let me define cultural dexterity for your listeners. It's a phrase I coined, and it is the opposite of colorblindness. It is an enhanced capacity for being among and seeing racial and ethnic difference and accepting it rather than demanding that that person assimilate to your own cultural norms. And I argue in the book, this is the, you know, the book is in three parts. This is the last part of the book about the future, the present and the future. I argue that through intimate contact with people of different races, people are acquiring this quality of cultural dexterity and that it's happening 
right under our noses, and I don't think people have been paying attention to it, but rates of interracial marriage, cohabitation, dating, adoption, friendship, and also gaining knowledge and affection about different cultures through media and certain characters, you know, this is going on. And I use a mathematical concept. I have a science background. I use a mathematical concept of a geometric progression. And my analogy is to the um, dramatic change in attitudes about same-sex marriage. In a five-year period, we went from a country where a majority opposed same-sex marriage to a majority supported it. And in the early stages of a geometric progression, the change that's occurring is barely perceptible. And if you look at the way a, a, a geometric progression is mapped visually, it looks like this rather than a, a straight line going up at the end, it curves dramatically and goes up. And I think we are poised to experience that kind of dramatic tipping point. And despite what happened in Charlottesville. Part of the reason you're getting, I mean, the, the men carrying tiki torches, oh, yes. they are far, far outnumbered. They were in Charlottesville, and they are in this country, far, far outnumbered by people who look at them and shake their heads and say, you know, that's really kind of sad, right? You know, I think it is the fear of the change that is increasingly evident, right? In some of these recruiting cells, you can see evidence that the recruiters of hate groups are playing on certain white men's, you know, sexual frustrations about the fact like some white women are dating uh, non-white men, you know? <laughs> You know, right. they're playing to their insecurities about that. It's really kind of sad, right? But I think it's just evidence that the change is happening and there are some people who are non-dexterous and just can't stand it, right? Um, they look up and don't recognize the country they're living in, right? I, I mean, it, it, I don't want to be overly Pollyannish about it, but I use the example of California. If you look at California in the late 90s, it was very similar to where the country is today. The legislature was gridlocked. They could get almost nothing done. They were having rolling blackouts. Uh, it was almost ungovernable, right? And, you know, there, Pete Wilson had gotten himself elected in a landslide with this mean-spirited, anti-immigrant politics. But within the space of 20 years, that state went from being majority white to gridlocked, to majority, minority, to functional again. And now, California, you, no one could get elected to statewide office in California on that same kind of mean-spirited, anti-immigrant, scapegoating politics that Pete Wilson ran on, that Donald Trump ran on. You, it just would be, it's a political non-starter in that state, and the state is leading on climate change retreating from the war on drugs, investing more in education, raising taxes to do so. I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least it's an example of functional multiracial politics where debates are about the facts and the merits of the ideas rather than this 
scapegoating, dog whistling kind of thing. And so I really do believe, as bad as it seems right now, that the country could feel very different 5, 10, 15 years out, certainly in 20 years. But I think this stuff is accelerating. The one caveat I teach my students, you always have to think about the best argument that the other side has against you, okay? And the one caveat to what I'm saying is if if we don't undo gerrymandering, I think people who want to hold on to this race-coded based politics uh, may be able to hold on to it, and it may be effective a little longer. But I, I take hope from the Supreme Court's recent case from North Carolina, which struck down racial gerrymandering, and they're um, taking cert on the question of political gerrymandering. We may already, and, and what my argument is the tipping point will come when a critical mass of whites, not all whites, but a critical mass, perhaps only a third, 40%, have acquired dexterity, have accepted the loss of centrality of whiteness, and just wants to be part of a robust multiracial democracy for the common good. And I actually think a majority of people are already there, but for the structural limitations of the electoral college and gerrymandering, I think the outcome of, you know, not just the presidential election, but most policy debates would be very different. So we have a little ways to go. We do. Now, in addition to it being the 50th anniversary of Loving v. Virginia, it's also the 50th anniversary of Thurgood Marshall ascending to the Supreme Court. You were one of his clerks. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience as a Supreme Court clerk for Justice Marshall? Well, it was fantastic. Before I got married and had children, I would always say it was the best year of my life. Um, So first, Justice Marshall and my grandfather were fraternity brothers at Lincoln University, along with Langston Hughes. So for me, one of the most delicious parts of clerking for him is that I would get to sit with him one-on-one and he'd tell me these stories about, you know, like going down to, with Langston Hughes in the village, you know, in New York with a hip literary crowd. I mean, I would just be hanging on the edge of my seat and, you know, their little fraternity brother pranks. It was just fantastic. But he would also tell these stories you know, about leaving these sleepy southern towns within a hair of his life and going to Kenya to help draft the Kenyan constitution after independence for that country. Every story he told was worth its weight in gold. And that that was just fantastic. Um, The clerking part, to be honest, it it was uh, very sobering because the, the year I clerked for him, I worked on a case for him um, that involves school desegregation. And, you know, so I I got to experience working with him on on his life's work. And this was the beginning of a trilogy of cases in the 90s in which the Supreme Court basically said it's time to get for federal courts to get out of the business of policing school desegregation. And and I could see that he was heartbroken. And so it, it was a very tough year in that respect. And, you know, the first week I was on the job, Justice Brennan resigned, stepped down. And then the last week I was on the job, Thurgood Marshall stepped down. And so it was the end of an era 
And, you know, it made me feel like courts and litigation were not going to be a great venue for vindicating you know, or, or pursuing racial justice, racial equality. So it was a tough time in that sense, but it was also a fantastic experience. Now, this is not your first book. Once People Read Loving, available in stores everywhere and on audiobook, what are some of your other works? How could people reach out to you or learn more about what you have to say and, and the work that you're doing at Georgetown? Well, they can go to my website, CherylCashin.com. They can follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, my author page there. Uh, yeah, this is my fourth book. And I all of my books, in one way or another, touch upon race relations. And one is a memoir, um, The Agitator's Daughter, which, which also tells that story, but tells it in a very personal way. So, and they can email me through the website and... Oh, just go buy them, read them, share. <laughs> I treasure every reader, truly. Uh, it's an honor to me when I get emails from someone saying they read the book and it touched them in some way. That's gold for me. And lastly, uh, if there's someone like one of your young law students who's out there thinking, how can I get involved in the work of solving some of these problems of gaining cultural dexterity, as you put it, what would you suggest for a young lawyer or any young person? Well, wherever you are, I would find out who the real activists for justice are in the community where you live. They're everywhere. There's a lot of homegrown work being done, particularly since the election of Donald Trump. They're just so, I was having lunch today with a young woman who's, she's busy. She's got a busy day job, but she's, you know, ran for something, got herself elected to a council and now is thinking about running for something else. But she said she's part of this coalition of, you know, about 200 people who are serious activists who want to take back democracy. So, you know, find out what the activists are doing and get involved. Roll up your sleeves. Uh, whatever your issue is, you need allies to bring energy to make government responsive to that issue. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. The book, again, is Loving, Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy. Thank you to our listeners for sticking with me, even though uh, my voice is a little bit damaged from being ill. And thank you to you, Cheryl, for giving us the time and talking about your book. Thanks so much. It was an honor. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast listening service is.